invite you to turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 28 today, and as you make your way there, uh, let me ask you a question. Would you rather hear a lie or the truth? Don't be too quick now to answer. Because I want to fill in the question here just a little bit. What if the lie fits completely with your desires, reassures you that you're a good person, and on top of that makes you seem nice and kind and loving to all of your neighbors and friends and family and co-workers, and on the other hand, the truth runs counter to everything you really want to do, makes you feel like you're not that good of a person, and makes you seem unkind and intolerant to all of your neighbors and friends and co-workers and family. Is that a tougher choice? reality is that it's far easier many times to embrace comforting lies than it is hard truth, isn't it? And church history and our own experience tells us that some churches and some Christians, out of a commendable desire to not only be loving but to be seen as loving toward people, have allowed that desire to overwhelm and overrule uh, biblical truth, and they wind up presenting to people as truth that which is a comforting lie and uh, encourages them to accept what Jesus rejects and to tolerate what he despises. This morning we're going to be looking at, we're, we're continuing to look at the letters to the seven churches here at the beginning of Revelation. And we're looking specifically this morning at the church at Thyatira, which fell into this error that out of a desire to be nice, out of a desire to be loving toward people, out of a desire to be seen and to, and to have their, their uh, actions toward people seen as loving, allow them to endorse the things that God despises it's a temptation that a lot of so-called liberal churches have fallen victim to it's a temptation that is very much alive and active in the culture of our day and so we need this message but more than that we need the Holy Spirit to intervene for us so that we might hear what the Spirit of God is saying this morning so let's pray and then we'll open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for these, these ancient books that give us timely, relevant warnings and truths for our lives today. Uh, Father, we know that the, that the power is not in the, the book. The power is in the Spirit of God who caused it to be written and to be given to us. Uh, as your word to your people. And Father, we ask that you would help us to have, as the Scripture says, ears that hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. 
And Father, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up this letter here in um, Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 18. This is not an encouraging letter necessarily. Uh, in fact, it's one that is hard to, hard, to, hard to read and hard to hear. But it says in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this letter follows a familiar pattern. First, it's addressed to the church in Thyatira. In case you're a little light on your ancient, uh, ancient Asian geography, uh, <laughs> uh, Thyatira is the smallest of the seven cities in the western part of what is now the country of Turkey. And uh, it is important, Thyatira is important for a couple of reasons. One, it is the gateway city to all of the, all of the cities of western Asia. It was frequently conquered because of that. It was the city that was at the center of all of these that you needed to take possession of if you were going to take over the others. And so it was a city frequently conquered and destroyed. It was also a center, a commercial hub. One of the major industries that they had there was the making and selling of purple cloth. And in fact, one of the first converts from the city of Thyatira is a woman named Lydia, whom Paul leads to faith in Christ in another city. She's off conducting business there. And we read about her. Uh, at, and as a commercial hub, one of the things that was true about this city is that all of the business was controlled by what were called guilds. And what the guilds were is uh, essentially trade unions. And if you wanted to practice your trade in Thyatira, then you had to belong to one of these guilds. And you had to be a member in good standing, otherwise they could kick you out and you would not be allowed to buy and sell your merchandise in that town. Now that doesn't sound like that complicated of a circumstance, except you need to also understand this, that each one of these guilds 
had adopted for itself a patron deity, a god or a goddess that they regarded as sponsoring their activities. And so perhaps if you were a metal worker, you would have adopted the Greek god Hephaestus, the, the, uh, the, the god of forges and fires. Right? If you were, uh, if you were a, into the making of bread, then maybe you bowed down before Sybil, the god of wheat. Right? But you had to bow down before this god, and it was part of being a, me- a member of the guild, and you would go and worship at this temple on the feast days. And also, one of the things that was very common in this area is that as part of worship in the festivals, they would have prostitutes available, and you were expected to engage in immorality with these prostitutes that were part of worship. Now, you can imagine that if you are a Christian, this presents you with a very sharp conflict between the demands and calling of following Jesus and the demands of making your living. How am I going to balance those two things? I can't be a member in good standing of the guilds and go and participate in worship in the way that they do as a Christian. How can I do that? On the other hand, if I don't, I I don't know how I'm going to make my living. How am I going to do that? Well, that's the situation in which the church at Thyatira finds itself. And that's the backdrop you need to understand for these verses and how Jesus addresses them. Uh, You see also in, uh, in verse 18, you see a description of Jesus that's related to the vision of Jesus that John saw. It's also related, by the way, to what Jesus is going to say to the church. And look at how he introduces himself. He says, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is an exalted description of who Jesus is, that He really is the Son of God. And His eyes are like flames of fire, meaning that He not only sees all things, but that He is the, he is the judge over all people. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is the God who sees and responds to what He sees in judgment. And that's a a little bit of foreshadowing for what is going to come later in this letter. Verse 19, we see what Jesus says is good. He praises the church. Look at it. For your love and faith and service, and patient endurance. There are a lot of good things happening in this church. There's a lot of good things that are going on. Their faith is being lived out in how they treat people, and it has patiently endured despite opposition. In fact, unlike the church at Ephesus, their, their, their good deeds have grown over time. The church at Ephesus started out really good and then kind of tapered off. This church 
started out good and got better over time. Their love for Jesus and for one another is admirable in many ways. But there is a real and serious problem. Here's the problem. You remember that I, that I said that the guilds control all the jobs in Thyatira? And there's a conflict between the demands of being a member in good standing of the guilds and being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that you can't do both? Well, along comes this woman who calls herself a prophetess, and she says, you know what? I'm a prophetess, and I've got new revelation on this problem that we're in. And guess what? It's not a problem. It's not a problem. You can, out of love for your neighbors, go right along doing what everybody else does, and it's no big deal. And you can still maintain your Christian faith. I mean, after all, what are you going to do? Starve? God doesn't want you to go hungry. God wants you to reach these people. He wants you to go and be part of this community. And after all, we're such a loving church, we just need to reach out to these folks and engage in what they engage in. Is that a seductive error or what? That you can engage in as much immorality as you need to. You can participate in the feasts. And the church at Thyatira put up with it. They tolerated it. Probably because they really were a loving group of people who understood how hard it was to be faithful in that environment and they, didn't, they just didn't really want to confront people or to seem judgmental. Look closely at the text and see how Jesus responds. Jesus rebukes the church for tolerating this woman and her teaching. He says that she is, quote, seducing my servants and teaching them to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I think that's what Jesus is talking about as well when he uh, says in verse 22 that she and her followers are committing adultery with her. Their spiritual adultery of worshiping another god is leading them also to commit physical acts of adultery and immorality. Jesus says that she, quote, calls herself a prophetess. What does that imply about what he thinks? He doesn't think too much of her claim. She's not one in reality. And Jesus also calls, calls her Jezebel. By the way, if you're looking for names for your daughter, don't pick that one. Okay, not a good name in the Bible. Okay, let me tell you who Jezebel was. I, I don't think, by the way, that's actually this woman's name. 
I think that it is a name that Jesus gives her because of her close resemblance in what she is doing to the ancient woman named Jezebel who was part of Israelite history. You may remember that the the northern kingdom of Israel split off from the southern kingdom of Judah and they got themselves a king sooner or later along the line whose name was Ahab. And Ahab thought, you know what, I need to get myself a wife. And so he went to a people called the Sidonians who worshipped, they were, they were Phoenicians, and they worshipped a god named Baal. And Baal had a consort named Asherah. And the, it was a, was a sex cult that they were part of. And the whole idea was is that as you would, would bow down with one of these sacred prostitutes for Baal and Asherah, that that would stimulate the gods and it would cause the rain to fall on the earth and you would have fertility and crops and all this kind of thing. It was a gross religion. And Jezebel brought this into Israel. All of her, and she personally supported out of her own pocket 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And Elijah confronts them on Mount Carmel, if you remember the story. 1 Kings 18 will we'll tell it to you. And it did not rain in Israel for three and a half years as Elijah the prophet announced God's judgment on them for what they had done. Oh, you want to worship the rain god? Okay. Well, it just won't rain. Until you understand who really controls the blessing and the harvest. And this woman introduced this cult of Baal into Israel, and all God's people who were part of that northern kingdom went along with it. And they fell into immorality, and then not very long after this, fell under God's judgment and were taken off into exile. And I think Jesus calls this woman Jezebel because she is teaching God's people to be immoral and to bow down in front of an idol. Notice what else he says. Notice this, and underline this in your Bible, that Jesus is gracious and patient. He says, I gave her time to repent, verse 21. I gave her time to repent. By the way, how thick would your Bible be if you were God and people rebelled against you? Right? I'm guessing not this thick. Right? It'd be like, and people sinned, and Joe said unto them, Thou shalt repent. Right? And they did not repent, and therefore he judged them. End of book. <laughs> right God is gracious and he gives even this woman who is a false prophetess who is spreading false teaching who is teaching God's people that it's okay, that God is okay with immorality he says I gave her time to repent he wants her to repent and she and she won't and so so Jesus says, 
that he's going to put her on a sickbed. He's personally going to bring great trouble on those who follow her and kill her children. I don't think that's literally little kids. I think it's those who follow her. Those who are spreading her teaching within the church. He's going to bring a, he's giving a serious warning that serious judgment is about to come on these people because of what they have embraced. Is God gracious? Yes. Is he patient? Yes. But will he allow his children to continue to live in sin and promote heresy without consequence? No, he will not. In fact, you see this several places in the Bible. Uh, one, of the, one of the parallel passages that you ought to look at at some point uh, after today is 1 Corinthians 5, where there's a sexually immoral man living uh, in the church at Corinth, and God says, put him out of the church for the destruction of his body that his soul might be saved. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. That Jesus is going to bring judgment on these people, and it may even result in their death, because he is trying to bring about repentance by any means necessary that their soul might be saved. Jesus sees... Verses, verse 23, look at it. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Here's something we need to understand. We do not earn salvation. Amen? That's, that's, that is the gospel truth. We do not earn our salvation. How do we get salvation? By grace... Through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and took away the penalty for our sins and was raised from the dead to give us new life. And in, through faith in Jesus, we have both forgiveness from sin and the certain promise of, his, of resurrection of the body that we might live in heaven with Him forever. Right? We don't earn that. We don't do good works to get that. We don't uh, ratchet ourselves up through the sacraments in some way of, of you know, gaining merit, right? We don't, we don't have to you know, do certain kinds of prayers to gain that. There's none of that, right? It, what we receive salvation based on is not our works, but on the basis of Jesus' work on the cross and in his resurrection. But is there an expected transformation that does take place in response to the gospel if you are really a Christian? Yes. When you are born again, you receive new life, right? That which is alive grows, right? And if you are really alive in Christ if you've received new life then your life is transformed and you don't do the things that you used to do because the spirit is alive in your heart changing you from the inside out just like we sang right that from the inside out we experience transformation and we have a new life but if we are transformed 
then God does discipline us for our good. Right? He does. We become his children, and he does discipline us for our good. Hebrews 12 talks about that. That we all had fathers that disciplined us as however they thought was a good idea, however they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. And this passage is talking about the fact that Jesus sees what is going on in this church right here. And he is not happy about it. And he is bringing discipline of the severest kind because they have refused to repent. And given the choice between bringing about repentance in his people even if it results in their death and allowing it to continue, Jesus has made his choice. And now judgment is about to come on this group of people because of that. Remember, Jesus did not die to set us free from sin that we could sin without consequence. This is a serious thing. It is possible to sin in such a way that Jesus will, after giving you time to repent, bring serious and lasting corrective discipline into your life. And I would much rather have God's blessing than his discipline. Wouldn't you? Amen. Much rather. If I, if I, get, if I get the choice, and we all do. Uh, let's look at verses 24 to 29 now. In the last five verses of this passage, what we see is Jesus' word of encouragement, and we need to highlight that, uh, to the rest of the church, his promise of reward to those who persevere in faith, and also a closing word of encouragement to hear and obey what the Spirit of God is saying. So let's look at the encouragement first. You see that in verses 24 and 25. To the rest in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Apparently, one of the excuses that's being made for indulging in this sin and this false teaching was that it gave you secret spiritual knowledge. That you could get you could get deep things that you could only know by experience. It made you in some way superior to those who rejected it. Isn't that an insidious little twist? Je this woman that is called Jezebel and her followers not only excused what God condemned, they argued that it made them superior because they knew not only the deep things of God but the deep things of Satan how about that you get to you get to not only uh, engage in what God condemns as sin but you also get to brag about it how about that does that happen today by the way where where people who commend to believers in Christ, to their fellow believers. I've had, actually had this happen to me. Had people who say, well, you know, some of that stuff in the Bible about morality is just outmoded. You know, I mean, you've got to get with the times, man. 
And besides that, Jesus is all about love. And you are so judgmental. Anybody ever heard that? Right? Ever had your faith condescended upon because you will not endorse that which God rejects? I mean, you know, I actually had somebody tell me, a friend of mine, tell me at one point, well, you know, real Bible scholars know that when the Bible condemns homosexuality, that it doesn't really mean that. I mean, this, was, this came as news, right? <laughs> because there's no place where the Bible affirms it and many places where the Bible says that this is the kind of thing that God does judge people for, among a, a whole list of other kinds of immorality, right? But he laid it out there like I was the dumb one for not knowing better, right? That's a common error to not only say that you can do what Jesus says you should not do but then to brag about it as if it makes you a superior kind of Christian one of the hardest things to do when the cultural winds blow is to stand firm on biblical truth here's what Jesus says hold fast to what you have Hold fast to what you have. In other words, what your mama said, what your Sunday school teacher said when you were five years old, what your grandma said, what the Bible said, is all still true. It's all still true. It doesn't need updating just because the culture has changed. So hold on to what you have. Persevere in the same faith you were taught from the beginning. And keep on keeping on. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. That's the encouragement there at the, the end of 25. Hold fast what you have when? Until I come. Jesus is coming. Might not be today. Might not be tomorrow might not be next week but he is coming and when he comes his reward is with him in fact that's what you see uh, you've seen a lot of these mentioned in the 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 text before this chapter uh, chapter two uh, you see at the end of each one of these letters a promise of reward here are a couple of more if you are among those who overcome because you have kept the faith until the end, you will rule over the nations and receive the morning star. What's that talking about? Well, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, describes what happens after Jesus returns. Chapter 19, you, you read about the battle of Armageddon, where Jesus and the hosts of heaven show up. And uh, it's a very one-sided battle. Um, Jesus wipes out everybody, and it's it's just and it happens kind of instantaneously, and everybody's just whacked. You know, if you're at the battle on the side opposing Jesus, you're on the wrong side, and you lose immediately. 
And, um, and then after that, Jesus is on the earth and he establishes his kingdom reigning from Jerusalem. And the Bible talks there in Revelation 21 to 6 about those who have followed Jesus reigning with him over the earth. And that there are people who are alive on the earth at that time uh, who have lived through the tribulation who will form the nucleus of a, of a new population on earth. And if you are a follower of Jesus who's been faithful to follow him to the end, you are among those who are given a position of authority and rule in that kingdom. I hope this doesn't come as news. All right, But if it does, this is something that we're looking forward to. When Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth, this is what he's talking about. That those who follow him will literally inherit the earth and rule and reign alongside him over the earth. Over all of the nations of the world. All the kingdoms of this world will become ruled by Jesus and his followers in what is called the millennial reign of Christ. The Bible teaches it. And this is the promise that we are looking forward to. One of the things that we're looking forward to is that. By the way, what is the morning star? The morning star is another name for Jesus himself. When he says, I will give you the morning star, what's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that you will be with Jesus for eternity remember I've, I, I've said this before but the big deal of heaven the main attraction of heaven the center of all of the of, of life in heaven is not all of the good things that are present there but the fact that Jesus is there and you will be with him and I will be with him if we follow Jesus to the end and show our faith therefore to be real it's not that you have to follow because if you don't, you're lost. It's the fact that, that if we really know Jesus, it's what we do naturally. Just follow Him all the way to the end. All the way to our last breath. We follow to the end. And this passage concludes with the exhortation we see in all these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an encouragement, whenever we see it, to apply what God says to this church, to us, and to our church. And my hope is that all of us who are here this morning have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. And in case you missed it, let me just underline a few things that the Spirit of God is emphasizing in these verses. Number one, that love and faith and service and endurance that grow over time are all good and admirable things that Jesus praises and rewards. Now, this is a stern section of Scripture. It's one where Jesus is giving very serious warnings to his people, but he also gives encouragement and praise, and we need to hear that. That even this church, if Thyatira, as much of a mess as it was, has good things that it's doing that Jesus commends and notices and praises. And sometimes it's easy to focus on the negative, but we shouldn't miss the commendation 
that they get or fail to imitate what they did and what they did right. And we ought to ask ourselves if our love and faith and service and patient endurance are growing or diminishing. Theirs was growing. And it's a good thing that it was growing. Are, are, are our works better now than they were in the beginning? Theirs were. Is that a good thing? Yes. And it's worth examining ourselves to see if ours are growing as well. But, admirable love does not excuse tolerating sin and heresy. It does not excuse that. At this very moment, there are strong voices in the church and in the culture arguing for and promoting and tolerating false teaching and false living where issues of sexual morality are concerned. And they will say things like this. They will say, well, you know, it's not really loving to say that if you have XY chromosomes that you're a boy. That if you have XX chromosomes, you're a girl. And all of the surgery and, and costuming in the world does not change the fact of what God has designed. There are voices who will say, it is not loving to say that two men or two women or three women and, and two men cannot get married. That that is not a marriage. It's not loving to say that, some say. Others would say, well, you know, you cannot tell people that they can't live together before they get married. Because that's unkind. I mean, don't you understand that you Christians are so judgmental and that's why people don't want to come to church? Because who wants to be told they're doing what's wrong? And here's the deal. We're not judgmental. What we are is we love people enough to tell them the truth. We love people enough to tell them the truth. And the truth is that sexual immorality will not produce for you what you want it to give you. What you want from it is peace and joy and happiness and delight in life and it will not give you that. It will promise you that, but it will, it will not give it to you. There is no pornographic video you can watch that is going to satisfy the deepest desires of your soul. There is no immoral relationship that you can engage in that is going to say, yes, I have finally found my purpose in life. It isn't there. And what you will have at the end of immorality is the hollowness of your soul beating against your skull saying there has got to be more than this. And there is. And it's found only through faith in Jesus Christ. And no amount of anything else is ever going to fill up your hollow soul. 
What we are, men and women, if we are believers in Jesus Christ who proclaim what is true, is we are people walking through a cancer ward handing out cures. And what our culture wants to do instead is to go through the same ward and hand people M&Ms and say, take two of these and call me in the morning. You'll be fine. Now, having walked with a number of people through cancer, I guarantee you that most people in the cancer ward, if they were given a choice between chemo and M&Ms, are going to pick M&Ms, 10 out of 10. But one will save your life, and the other will taste good and kill you. And you've got to decide which one you're going to share with people. That which feels good for a moment and ultimately results in your death, or that which feels bad for a while, but which ultimately saves your life and brings you joy and restoration and relationship with God. Because it really is a matter of life and death. The gospel is life and death. Amen? It is, as, as, as Moses said to the people of Israel, today I've set before you life and death. Choose life that you might live. It's not that God is against sex, by the way. He's not against sex. He invented sex. He's against sin. And there's one context and one alone for sexual enjoyment, and it is within the context of a one-man, one-woman covenant relationship. And apart from that, God does not bless it. I know I've been very passionate, and this is a very stern passage. But hear me when I say this. I am not down on anyone in this room, okay? I say that with all, I say that what the scripture says with all the love of Christ because it is my responsibility to disclose what God's word says. But if you are wandering away from God into some area of this or another, and I just say to you with all of the love of Christ, repent. Repent. Turn around. Turn back to the Savior who loves you and who forgives and whose death paid for all of our sin. That you might be free. That your joy might be restored. That your life might be made new. You might be able to start over and say, This time, Lord, I want to follow you better. I want to do it right. Help me. But how much do you have to hate people to encourage them in a lie? How much do you have to hate people to, do, to encourage them to keep doing that which will lead to God's judgment? It isn't loving. It's unkind. It's hatred in the highest form. To tell people to continue their merry way doing that which will ultimately take their life and send them to hell. We can't be doing that. Amen?
And our church cannot promote that. So hold fast to what you have because Jesus is coming with His reward. Hold fast. Hold fast. The wind outside the walls of this place may blow 100 miles an hour. The days are probably coming when saying what I've just said will get you censored on social media. When saying what I have just said will cause our church to lose its tax-exempt status. Will cause us to, uh, to have to pay property taxes on our property. To have to bow before the secular authorities and do what they, what they say because we would choose faithfulness over niceness. Or perceived niceness anyway but guess what Jesus is coming and his reward will outweigh any costs that we have to pay his reward will outweigh any costs we have to pay because we will get him we will be with him and one day, all of the kingdoms of this world will, as the prophet said, become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. His reward is with Him. Hold fast to what you have. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Persevere until the kingdom comes nothing else is worth it let's pray father this is a hard passage this is uh, a text that that speaks to areas of our hearts that we would rather leave hidden where um, sin is confronted along with love commended Father, we, we like all the passages that talk about your love for us and we, we squirm when you, you announce judgment and discipline because we know how prone to sin we all are. Father, I pray that you would help us, that, if, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. That if we are in sin, that we would not feel condemned today, but that we would feel a great desire to turn around and make a new start. To make a new plan and have our new plan be to follow Jesus with all of our heart and to leave sin behind. Because, Father, in in following Jesus, there's life. In any other way that we try to go, there's only death and destruction of every part of our existence. Father, there is, as the Scripture says, a way that seems right to a, to a man or to a woman, but in the end leads to death. Father, many of us have followed that way of death at various points in our lives and we know that that's true 
And then we met Jesus and we found life. But the way of death still sometimes holds an attraction in our hearts. Father, help us to turn away from that. And to follow Jesus, knowing that reward is coming if we follow him faithfully. Because Jesus is coming and his kingdom is coming. And we will rule in it if we followed him. We look forward to that day, Father, between that day and this one. Help us to be filled with your spirit that we might follow you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.